Our topic tonight is a very interesting topic out of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 46. We're not going to look at every verse in all those chapters, but uh, quite a few, regarding the temple that God showed to Ezekiel. And there's a lot of speculation over this temple. Uh, all kinds of different uh, theories on it, to everything from that it's going to come soon in our day, to uh, it's during the millennium, to it's all just spiritual application. And so we're going to be looking at uh, some of the different views. We're going to be looking at the text and seeing how those views and others match up with, with, the, with the text itself. So starting in chapter 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our captivity, in the 14th year after the city was captured, at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month. So the 10th day of the month of the beginning of the year, that would be four days before Pesach. And uh, that's when the uh, sacrificial lamb would have been placed aside, the Passover lamb would have been placed aside uh, in preparation for, for his sacrifice for the Passover. Uh, so it was right at that time that God gives him this vision, and it's in his 25th year of captivity. So that's a long time, him being in Babylon for Ezekiel and for those who were taken in that first wave of captives. And it's 14 years since Jerusalem was destroyed, which is, again, quite some time, and so they're moving along in the contorum of uh, the timeline of, of when Jeremiah prophesied that we'd be in captivity for 70 years. This is when he receives this message. So he's been prophesying for quite some time. And you get to chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 2. In the vision of God, he, set, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. So he'd been taking in vision. He's not physically being taken, but in vision, he's going. God's taking him there and setting him uh, in vision on top of this high mountain. It doesn't say which mountain it is. And he's looking to the south, which is interesting that it, that it references specifically the direction that he's looking. And what he's seeing, and he's seeing this structure, something like a city, huge, of what he's seeing. More than just a temple, but an entire city, it seems. Verse 3, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a measuring rod in his hand, and he went to the gateway and measured. And then for the next several chapters, many, many verses, he's measuring, and he's measuring, and he's measuring, and he's measuring. In Revelation, John sees a similar uh, man coming with a golden reed, who's also measuring, but not measuring the temple. There he's measuring the new Jerusalem. But certainly some parallels in the, in the concept there. Uh, and so there he's measuring the new Jerusalem. He gives us general dimensions of the new Jerusalem. Here he's measuring this temple with detailed, exact measurements. And so we're going to look at a couple little videos uh, depicting some of these measurements and what the temple might have looked like based on those measurements. We're not going to watch the whole thing. I'll just show you uh, a little bit of each one.
So now let's go inside the temple itself with the next video. the idea lots of details detail detail details uh, presented again verses and verses and verses of it um, and then verse 38 still chapter 40 it says there was a chamber where they washed the burnt offering and in the gateway were four tables on which to slay the burnt offering the sin offering and the trespass offering and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the table. So while he's there in vision and he's seeing and he's looking in all these dimensions and, and, and the man is measuring with the reed, he sees dead animals, the flesh of the animals, on these tables. And these tables are to be used for these various offerings, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Now are there going to be offerings and animals dying during the millennium? If you think so, then you don't have a proper understanding of what takes place during the millennium. And if there's going to be a temple while well, in our lifetime, before the Lord returns, before the millennium starts, would it be God's temple that would have sacrifices being offered there? Would it be a temple of God if there are sacrifices there again? Or has the ultimate sacrifice already come? It's already come. So if there is a temple that's built and there's sacrifices there, it's not God's temple that's being built. It's man's temple at best. At worst, it's demonic. Uh, God's temple that had the sacrifices have already come, have already played their part, have already foreshadowed and prefigured the Messiah to come. There's no need for sacrifices anymore. Let's continue on. In verse 46, still in chapter 40, the chamber which faces north is for the Kohanim who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near the Lord to minister to him. Now, it's very hard to know what tribe anyone is from anymore. I mean, maybe if your name is Levi Strauss or something like that, you might say you're a Levite. Uh, but uh, it'd be very hard then even from that to say, I am from the tribe of Z the family of Zadok. 
Um, and uh, to get at that, but it said, that's what it says. So the family of Zadok, of the tribe of Levi, they are the ones to be doing these next positions that are mentioned in these verses. And so again, today or any time in the near future, it would really be impossible. And even if they were able to say they're from Levi again, what percentage would it be after all the interbreeding of the 12 tribes and, and others as well? Chapter 43, verse 1. He brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. All right, so envision he's seeing, he's seeing the glory of the Lord come. And he's coming from the east, and he's coming to the temple. Must have been beautiful to see. Awestruck seeing this take place. And it's coming from the east, and as a result of, I believe, this text, uh, the gate that's on the eastern side today, uh, which is not from the temple, it's a relatively young gate, it's about a thousand years old, I think it was built by Saladim, uh, and it's closed off. It's not used even today, it's not used, it's not an entrance gate into the, the city, of the old wall, the old city. And right in front of that gate is a Muslim cemetery. It's not very huge, but it's a Muslim cemetery right in front of that gate. And I believe it was placed there because of this text and others similar, with the belief that the Messiah would come from the east and would come in through the eastern gate. And so the Muslims were going to stop the Messiah from coming by putting uh, the, the Muslim cemetery, because certainly no Jew would walk through a Muslim cemetery. <laughs> and so that would stop him from coming. And, and so that's how it is today. The gate is closed. And the, there's a Muslim cemetery, again, a small one, uh, in front of it. But in vision, he's seeing the glory of the Lord come in through that gate. It was the, like the appearance of the vision which I saw by the river Chabar. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate that faces toward the east. And so he's seeing this just like the vision that he saw many, many years earlier in the beginning of the book where he sees the vision of God and the wheel within a wheel and, and all the beauty uh, that, that, that he envisions there and sees there. And we've discussed that in the past. And you can see that. You can go back onto shalomadventure.com and type in Ezekiel sermons and, and it'll come up. Chapter 44, verse 1. He brought me back to the outer court of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. The Lord said, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. So even for this temple that God is showing, he has, God has them build this, this, this dimensions and the instructions for building this eastern gate, but it's only to be used once. The glory of the Lord comes in through that gate, and then it's shut, and it's sealed. Because it's kind of been you know, sanctified, been made holy by the Lord's presence coming in and entering into the temple, and then it's shut and sealed. So it's kind of interesting that the eastern gate, again, not going to the temple, but going into the old city, is closed right now since the Messiah has come and he has entered into the city. And so there is not a need for him to come in through that gate anymore anyway. Again, that wasn't the purpose that it's sealed, but maybe God had a kind of, you know, it's kind of an interesting analogy there that it is shut. Okay, still chapter 43, verse 10. Son of man, describe the temple of the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities 
and let them measure the pattern. So in getting the vision and giving all the details, it is to bring conviction to our hearts and to make us ashamed of our sins. We'll come back to that again later. And let them measure the pattern. So mark the pattern, measure the pattern. It's more than just for spiritual, but measure this pattern. There's a pattern here. There's dimensions here. In chapter 43, verse 18, Son of man, the Lord God says, these are the ordinances for the altar, for the sacrificing of the burnt offerings on it, and for the sprinkling of blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the Kohanim, the Levites, the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. So we already talked about the offerings, their offerings, and so there's lots of verses here about the offerings, and I mentioned Zadok here again, and we've already talked about that. I put the text up here again, because both are placed together in one text, and so it's spoken about more than once. Uh, so again, it doesn't match up with, with something during the, the millennium or in the near future, in that there would be this, uh, uh, that we'd know the, the people that were from the, the family of Zadok, of the Levites, and, uh, and that there'd be sacrifices. Verse 18, they shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies, and they shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. And I included that text of, out of all the texts in these six chapters because I think that's a good principle. We should not wear polyester, right? Don't wear anything. Don't wear anything that causes sweat, right? So if you see it says 100% nylon or something like that, do not wear it. The Bible says, here's your Bible text, do not wear anything that causes you to sweat. And so if our air conditioning ever isn't working here and you see me take off my jacket, I have biblical text to do that. I've got a biblical right to do that, not to wear anything that would cause us to sweat. Okay, so I think that's a, that's a good principle. All right, but it also says here, they shall have turbans on their heads, which matches up with what it says in the Torah about the Levites, that they would have turbans, that they would have hats on their heads, uh, and that's kind of where we get the concept of, of the yarmulke. Uh, and so there's some discussion in some circles about whether men should have their heads covered or not heads covered, and uh, based on a misunderstanding of a, of a verse that Paul wrote. Uh, but here we see the Levites wore, had their, their heads covered when they were serving in the temple, at least. Okay, verse 25 of chapter 44, verse 25. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person, only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, may they defile themselves. So it's saying... Don't defile yourself with a dead body unless it's these certain people. Well, are people going to be dying during the millennium? If we think so, again, we don't understand what the millennium is about. And so if you want a, a, an understanding of the millennium, we have a, a whole uh, series of 31 messages on Daniel and Revelation available, Surviving and Thriving in DVD set. And uh, if you'd be interested in that, we have those available uh, for sale. And it goes over the millennium as well as all the last day events and, and on to eternity. And uh, it explains the millennium based on the Bible text there. And so certainly there won't be people dying there and, and we have to worry about defiling ourselves by going to the grave or the body of our mother or father or sibling. But here, this instruction is given for this temple, the, the one that God's showing Ezekiel. Chapter 45, verse 15 
One lamb shall be given from the, a flock of 200, from the rich pastors of, of, pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings, for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to make atonement for them, says the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give his offering for the prince of Israel. And so it's now mentioning offerings again and for the purpose of atonement. Well, we're not going to need offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, lamb offerings for atonement during the millennium, during the thousand years. Again, if you think so, there's a misunderstanding of, of what's going to take place during that time. Nor would we need that any time before the Lord comes again, because the atonement has already been made, right? The Messiah has already come, the Messiah has already been sacrificed for us, atonement has been made, we don't need the blood of lambs and of goats and of bulls to make atonement for us. We have accepted his atonement that he has already sacrificed in our behalf. So that kind of wipes out, this text already that we've seen already, already kind of wiping out this Ezekiel temple being some third temple in the future here or during the millennium. But there is a purpose for these texts. And again, many texts. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse, chapter 45, verse 17. Then it will be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin, grain, peace, and burnt offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So it refers now to several verses about this prince, that this, the prince has a role to play as well. That there's the people give offerings for the prince, and the prince has these offerings that he makes for atoning of the people. Again, that wouldn't happen in the future and wouldn't happen during the thousand years. There is a place for it. And there are certain spiritual, certainly spiritual applications for texts such as this. That the Messiah as the Prince, the Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom, has made atonement for us by himself, by his sacrifice. He has atoned for our sins, our sins are forgiven, and as we accept his atonement, as we accept his his sacrifice in our behalf, we receive his forgiveness, and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness, and he makes us at one with him, atonement with him, and brings us back to the Father, and brings us back into harmony with God's word and God's law, forgiving our sins and cleansing us. Chapter 46, verse 8, When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the vestibule, of the gateway and go out the same way. So the prince has a special role to play and what he does is he goes in one way and out the same way he came in. Okay? In contrast to that, chapter 46, verse 9, when the people of the land come before the Lord on the appointed feast days, whoever enters the north gate to worship shall go out the south gate and whoever enters the south gate shall go out the north gate. He shall not return how he came, but shall go out through the opposite gate. Okay, so the prince goes in one gate, goes out the same gate. But anyone else who goes in one gate has to go out an opposite gate. And again, there's spiritual applications. Let me turn this off. I think it's ringing or something like that. Let's try. Let's try this one, okay? Is that better? All right. So the spiritual application on that is uh, the mikvahs, the mikvahs in Israel, 
they had steps going down into the water for a person to immerse themselves, and then they would turn and come up a separate set of steps with a little partition, a little wall between the two. And so you went in defiled, you were cleansed, and then you came out clean, and you didn't go back out on the dirty steps that you went in on, you went out a different way. That's well, just a quick U-turn, but, but the principle there, the concept there, that we come to the Lord, we receive cleansing, and we don't go back the same way we came. We don't come out the same way we, we were, right? Uh, you know, come as you are, leave even better, right? Is the concept, right? Not just come as you are and leave the way you are. Right? We need to come to the Lord and we need to come out clean, we need to come out better. This is that principle. So you go in one way, but the prince, he's perfect, holy, right? He can go in, he can come in one way and go back out the same way, but we need a different way. And also the temple, when we go to Israel, we go to the southern steps. Well, we see a lot of the mikvahs uh, in that area. And, uh, and then also the entering in through the steps at the southern wall. How they entered in Yeshua's day. We go right up the steps. We go right up to the steps. Come right up to the gate. And they would enter in through one gate. And they would come out a different gate. So not only in, into the mikvah, but also into the temple area in the courtyard. Go in one way and come out another way. Same principle again. And so we brought out here as well this, this spiritual concept. Come into the Lord, receive of the Lord, and come out clean and a different way. So there are spiritual applications. But I don't think all six of these chapters are for spiritual applications. It's hard to find a lot of spiritual applications for every little measurement. The wall to be 10 feet, and there was a wall around it. 10 feet wide and 10 feet high. You know, you can have some spiritual applications, but it's hard. With every gate and everything having a, you know, a measurement and all these different things and, and uh, guard gates and all this and windows and to uh, have spiritual application for six chapters. It really goes on through chapter 48. We're just looking at these six today. We'll do chapter 47 and 48 hopefully another time. That's a lot of chapters. Eight chapters out of Ezekiel's 42 chapters. That's almost 20% of his book is based on this temple. So there's certainly a purpose for this temple that God gave him this vision. And there is spiritual application, but I think it's more than that. Chapter 46, verse 10. The prince, then, the prince shall then be in their midst when they go in and they shall go in. When, he, when they go in, he shall go in. And when they go out, he shall go out. Again, nice spiritual application. The Lord is with us. He's always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. When we go in, he goes in with us. When we go out, you know, he's there. Wherever we are, he is with us. And great spiritual understanding there uh, for, for our lives today. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift to some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is there by possession of inheritance, by inheritance. Okay, so this prince has sons. So obviously he's envisioning more than just the prince, the Messiah, but princes, generation after generation, that would change positions over time. And so they would have sons, and they would give their inheritance when they die, and pass it down, or while they're alive, and give it to their children, and it would pass down generations. Verse 17, if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty, after which it shall return to the prince. But his inheritance shall belong to his sons, 
it shall become theirs. And again, if you think there's going to be servants in the millennium of the thousand years, then we're misunderstanding what's taking place there. But here the prince can give an, a portion to his servants, but it goes back to his sons during the year of Jubilee. Verse 18, still chapter 46. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons for, from his own property, so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. And again, if you think that would even be a possibility that it would need to be written, if it was for the thousand years, then we again don't understand the prince and we don't understand uh, what's taking place during the thousand years. So I think clearly from these texts we've seen, this is not taking place during the thousand years and doesn't even really apply for the future because the prince has already come. The prince of peace has already come. And while there is some spiritual application, it's not enough to give 20% of, of the book that God envisioned for Ezekiel to give just for some spiritual application that we can come up with for dimensions. Tons and tons of dimensions and tons and tons of sacrifices. And we already have sacrifices like that listed in, 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 uh, in the Torah. So what then is the purpose? Why would God give 20% of this important book of the Bible if it's not to apply to us? If there's no purpose to it? If it's not for the future temple, if it's not for the thousand years, if, it's, if there's more to it than just a few spiritual applications that we can get from a few of the verses, why then did he give it? Well, I believe there's a real reason for it, an important reason for it. I don't think it's any of those three reasons, and those three reasons are the most popular reasons that are out there. I believe, well, we'll look at another text here that I think will give us a clue. This is from the book of Ezra, who lived after Ezekiel, several years after, after the 70 years when we were allowed to come back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, many of the Kohanim and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. So in Ezra's time, Cyrus, Babylon is taken over by the Medo-Persians, and Cyrus, who's then ruling over the Medes and Persians, he gives us permission to go back and to build the temple and to live in the land. And that's prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before Cyrus is born and prophesied by name, that a man named Cyrus, which is an amazing thing, is going to allow us to go back. And that's prophesied even before we were taken captive. So Isaiah is prophesying that we're going to be taken captive and then a man Cyrus is going to let us go back. And he does. And some people went back. And they worked hard. Under Ezra and Nehemiah and they worked hard. And when the temple is built, the foundation is laid. And there are some people there, maybe in their 80s, 90s, who are alive when Solomon's temple was still standing. Before Babylon came in and destroyed it, before Babylon came in and took them captive, before Babylon came in, took Ezra and the others captive. And so they're old enough to remember what it looked like 
what Solomon's temple looked like, even after hundreds of years of Solomon's temple being worn down and abused by many kings and then rebuilt and refurbished. But they remember what Solomon's temple looked like. And they look at this and they begin to cry. And they're weeping because it's nowhere near the standard that they had hoped for. Why didn't it meet the standard? Well, only few people came back. Many of us stayed in Babylon. We had it pretty good in Babylon. And we got comfortable in Babylon. And a second decree comes by Darius and lets us go back and some more people come. And then under Artaxerxes, a third decree comes and we're allowed to come back. And some more come back. And even under some of those, financial means is given by the government of the Medo-Persians to help us to build the city and build the temple. But we didn't all come back. And then Haman comes along. And we almost get annihilated. Very close. And that's where the book of Esther comes in. And the Purim story comes in. Because we were so comfortable sitting in Babylon. Sitting in our homes, in our businesses. And we didn't go back. I believe that the reason God gave this vision to Ezekiel regarding this temple, these eight chapters... Because this is what God wanted to be built after the 70 years. This is what God envisioned. And this is why he told them, tell the people the measurements so that they will be convicted, that they will be ashamed of themselves and have them take the measurements of the pattern and use those patterns, use that measurement and build this temple, which was much larger than Solomon's, six times larger than Solomon's, bigger than all of Jerusalem today. And so again, to think it could be built in our time, you not only have to wipe out the Dome of the Rock and the temple, you have to wipe out all of Jerusalem, knock over everything in Jerusalem, including the U.S. Embassy there, and everything, and, and flatten it out to make just the temple part. And then there's an outer area as well, it's huge. But in that day, when Israel had lain barren and Jerusalem had lain barren for 70 years, it could have been built. And I believe that's what God wanted to be built. And I believe if we all would have come, we were so blessed in Babylon and under uh, Medo-Persians that we had good means. I mean, look at the position that Daniel was in and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and, and that Mordecai was in. And we were given good positions. that we would have come back and used the wealth that God gave us in that land. And if we would have come back in sufficient numbers and put our energy and our talents and our gifts, we could have built the temple that God showed to Ezekiel with its exact dimensions. And I believe if we would have done that wholeheartedly, and it's not the doing of it, but it's that we wanted to do it, that we would have been willing to do it, that we would have been willing to go back to the land, that we would have been willing to serve the Lord, that we would have been willing to follow God's scriptures 
each detail of it because our hearts were converted, because our hearts were cleansed, because we confessed our sins, because we received his spirit and he empowered us to want to follow his word, we would have come in mass and we would have followed his word and we would have been able to build the temple that God showed to Ezekiel. And then we would have had princes ruling over it in order, doing exactly what the princes were told to do in these texts. And eventually it would have led the way for the ultimate prince, Messiah the prince to come with the glory of the Lord and come in through the eastern gate and we would have accepted him in mass. And all of history would be different. But we didn't. And thus, Ezekiel's temple never was built. It was a vision of what God wanted. It was a vision of what God desired. It was a vision of what could have been, but wasn't. And now as we think of how they blew it, and how selfish they were, and how unfaithful they were, and how unbelieving they were to stay in Babylon, I believe that we're no better. I believe that today, if every committed or professed committed person who believes, professes to believe the Bible was giving a faithful 10% tithe and offering on top of that and giving of their time and giving of their talents and giving of their energy, the gospel would have gone to the world by now and we would be in heaven. That the Lord would have descended with a, from heaven with a shout. The dead in Messiah would have raised already. And we'd be gathered together to meet him in the, Lord, in the air. And he'd take us to the mansions that he's preparing for us. But we're still here today because we're no better than they were. We're living in Babylon. We're liking our homes. We're liking our money. We're liking our cars. We're liking our stuff. And we're not applying the word of God to our lives any more than they were. And we're just as disobedient and unfaithful as they were. And I believe it's going to take a Haman type of situation, a Purim type of situation, all over again, the threat of the mark of the beast all over again, before we wake up. The world needed to see that temple. And the world is needing to see God's temple built in us. The Bible says we are the temple of the Lord, and individually and corporately. And he wants to make us fit stones designed, fashioned, and united together, built together with the word of God as our foundation, with Yeshua as the chief cornerstone, Loving one another, building together, knit together, without spot, without blemish, blameless before the Lord. A virgin, pure bride, ready to meet the Lord. And that's what God is waiting on. And that's what the world is waiting on. That's what the world is wanting to see. That's why the world doesn't believe in the Bible, in God. 
because of us, because we don't represent it right. We're a horrible representation as a corporation of believers around the world. We discredit his word. God's wanting his temple. Not the, that passion, pa- pattern is no longer applicable. But he wants to build the pattern in us. The measurements in us to bring us up to the true stature in Messiah that he has called us to be. And we measure up by his grace, by his power, by his truth in love. And then the end can come. As it says in 2 Peter, that we can hasten his coming. And he's calling on us to hasten his coming. We've been here generation after generation after generation because of us and no other reason. And we don't have to look outside these world walls because look at what God did with 11 disciples. Holy Spirit can be poured out on us and this gospel can go to the world in a generation and we can go home. We don't have to be in Babylon any longer. But the choice is up to us. God has given us a blueprint. He's given us a pattern to follow. We don't have to blow it any longer. We can allow God to make the change in us. That the change in this world can take place. And that the Lord can come and take us to the mansions that he's preparing for us. And it can begin the process of making a new heaven to new earth, wherein will dwell righteousness forever. And so as we prepare and pray, prepare to pray. If God has brought to your mind any area that, of unfaithfulness, of any spot, of any blemish, of any area where you in your life are holding back his coming, of not building up the temple of the Lord, then a moment when we pray, you can ask God to forgive you and cleanse you. Secondly, if you're feeling God's conviction that there's some area in your life that you're hindering the corporate temple of the Lord to be built up, that there's some disunity in your life, there's some separation in your life, there's some unforgiveness or bitterness or prejudice against someone in the family of God or someone who's a potential person for the family of God, a potential stone in God's temple. You want to ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you and to wash that out of your life. That you can have love to all of God's children, all of humanity. Thirdly, if God's bringing to your mind some area that he's calling you to hasten his coming, to share his word with someone, to live out his life in you, to warn the world around you. 
And a moment we pray, ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of the Lord to come into you and to fill you and to shine out of you and to prepare the way before you for this person. So easy to look at the others, so easy to look at Ezra's day and condemn them for not building the temple. But how about ourselves? And so let us pray. And if you want to say, Lord, use me in hastening your coming. Fill me. Cleanse me. I accept your atonement. Give me your spirit. Live in me and out of me. Let the world see you in me. And use me in uniting your temple here on earth. Build me up on your foundation of your word. Build me up on you. Be my chief cornerstone. Let me put all my weight on you and unite me with the family of God. One together, united together. If any of those areas are your prayer tonight, then let us pray together and let God do his work in us. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we are thankful of the examples of the past, good and bad. And we ask forgiveness for the people in Ezekiel's day for their unfaithfulness, for getting so comfortable in Babylon. And Lord, we ask forgiveness for our comfortableness in Babylon, for our attachment to this world and the things of this world, the ease and the pleasure, the things and the toys, the relationships and the friends. Forgive us and wash us clean. We ask forgiveness for hindering your coming. We ask forgiveness for our selfishness and our greed. We ask forgiveness for not being wholehearted in our lives and in our giving of our time and our resources that you've given to us and the talents and abilities. Convert us, Lord. Change us and forgive us. Transform us and fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your glory. And make us living temples for you, individually and corporately. Unite us together in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.